Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, December 10th. Um, we have a special show for you today. Um, we have Tony Glogler here. He's one of the poets that we've published most in Rattle's history. And we also have um, a special episode in that we're not going to have an open mic tonight. Instead, we have, I guess you'd call it a closed mic, but we already have it set up to um, read 10 pre-recorded poems from this anthology put it up on screen alongside we travel contemporary poets on autism this is um an anthology that came out recently from nyq books uh tony glogler has poems in here as do a whole bunch of poets that we've published um writing about their experiences with autism and um so let me to start out let me um read the introduction or at least some of this introduction this is um sean thomas doherty who edited this anthology um, and it's a little introduction. I'm going to read the first and last paragraphs here just to sort of set it up and let you know what, what's going on here. Uh, this little bit is called The Grace of the Aggrieved, Poetry and Autism. There's a common saying in autism communities, I might not know everything about autism, but I know my autistic child. The diversity of this disability can run from the idiot savant Rain Man ideal often perpetuated through popular culture to a child being simply quirky or prone to outbursts to a really devastating physical and intellectual disability that can be devastating for a family. When I began to publicly propose this anthology, I had a well-known disability critic say to me, and I will quote him exactly, this is wonderful news, but please don't publish too many poems by whining, aggrieved parents. I say this as a parent of a young man with autism, a young man who I cherish exactly as he is. His response, though, um, though a fine sentiment, is rather useless. What if your child must live with a profound disability that causes him or her pain, and as a parent you must witness this for his life, for a life? This critic's response gets to the core of, or gets to the core reason why I wanted to publish an anthology on autism. I wanted to hear the poems of those aggrieved parents alongside the ones who profess to have no regrets. I wanted to hear the voices of caregivers and cousins, witnesses, and the guilty. I wanted to hear, if accomplished, the voices of autistic artists. What this critic failed to understand, both as a parent and as an artist, was the ability to empathize and feel compassion outside of his own experience. And then let me just read the very end to you. Again, this is still Sean Thomas Doherty from the introduction. This anthology highlights the commonalities of experience across borders, gathering writers from Canada, the United States, the UK, and Israel. I can only hope these poems do for you, the reader, what they have taught me, the editor, about my own autistic daughter, about art and how we can be brought together through language towards love. This is a book that can teach us about hope even while feeling aggrieved or betrayed by the world, a book to sing those we care for, and who teach us every day about the diversity of what it means to be a human being. And that was Sean Thomas Doherty. Uh, the editor of this anthology, alongside We Travel. And so for the pre-show and the post-show today, we're going to be playing some poems from this anthology. Um, and since we don't have an open mic, I don't have to do any of that spiel, but um, still, if you have any questions for Tony Glogler, uh, our guest today, um, go ahead and ask on the chat, and I will pass those questions along. Um, let me see. Let's start out... You go. This is uh, Yvonne, Yvonne Blomer, and here she is reading uh, Sonnet for a Newborn Now Seven. 
Sonnet for a Newborn, Now Seven, by Yvonne Blomer. Underground we were, below the citadel, my son newborn asleep on my chest. On the streets above, Italian flowed like mother's milk in heat. We were in a cathedral or under it. We felt the etched walls for markings, birds or other animals. The monks or a priest above began to sing. Was it Ave Maria that fell through stone, through the ages and knowledge of stone? Sound, thrum in the chest, entered us. Out of the corner of my eye or my imagination, I saw a boy leaning in. He was my son now. His hands are small, so perfect, the one pinky finger a little crooked. Chords he plays in sleep or standing, he flicks his fingers when idle or bored, flicks and when he's lost interest, he flicks again, taps nail to nail, he picks a low baritone song, Gratia Plena. So that was um, Yvonne Blomer reading her poem, Sonnet for a Newborn, Now Seven. Um, Yvonne Blomer is an award-winning writer, mentor, and teacher of poetry and memoir who served as Victoria, B.C.'s Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2018. And um, you can find more of her work at Yvonne Blomer. That's Y-V-O-N-N-E-B-L-O-M-E-R.com. So check her out there. Um, so we have eight minutes. Let's do maybe we could probably do two more. Next up would be Lauren Camp. Let me find her her poem really quick. This is Lauren Camp reading Traveling with the Ferryman. Traveling with the Ferryman. I am damned close to the edge because this golden Asperger's boy was assigned a three-page term paper on purgatory. Rather than write it, he bites his nails as I try to channel him through the grand array of human experience. He wrenches his feet back and forth, it's impossible to explain that someday he, too, may be teetering to a long-ago gap. How can I say, as you sway in hardscrabble history, stay steady for Cerberus and his rough rows of dark teeth, the matted fur. Do not fear the crowding. Sit pinned tonight. He twirls his hair in his right hand. He asks a pointless question one filled with the enormity of existence. I'm impatient, and he's in no hurry to think through the future of his past. We pretend his mind is not blurred with life's strongest currents, that he knows lamentation and cold, when instead he has changed course to a track meet on Tuesday and his family's trip to Alaska this summer. Will they see elk? From the endless abyss, I nudge him and he scrutinizes the window. We're reaching the irreducible deadline. What will it take for him to hunch in the innermost, to imagine he's in a stained boat on a backdraft of previous days? Oh, to hell with it. It's like having three heads doing this tutoring job with a boy in his reveries. Just as I give up, he looks to the side without seeing and says astrally, So inching around his unnavigable thoughts as he often does. 
he intones with a voice thick and wrestled. The ferryman will pull an obelisk from our weeping eyes, showing each of us our sins. This sixteen-year-old, on the verge of failing his classes, tells me we have to yield up our runnelled faces. He shrugs and looks off. Then we sit in what is left of winter, and the air seems faded with silence. But still, it's made of air. That's uh, Lauren Camp reading Traveling with the Ferryman. And Lauren Camp is the author of four books of poems. Her third book, 100 Hungers, um, won the Dorset Prize from Tupelo Press and was named a finalist for the Arab American Book Award. She lives in New Mexico. Um, and we'll do one more. This is, uh, we're going to do uh, Barbara Crooker. And Barbara is actually going to be our featured poet coming up. Um, I think it's January 10th, maybe, or 17th. She'll be our guest on the show. She has a new book out from, I'm, I'm going to say right now, uh, she's the poetry editor, Barbara Cooker, of, for the Italian Americana. She's the author of nine books of poetry. And her most recent one, Some Glad Morning, is what just came out from the Pitt Poetry Series. So she'll be our guest, I think it's January 17th, so keep an eye out for that. But here she is with a poem, Grating Parmesan, and hopefully I have the right one here. Grating Parmesan. A winter evening, sky the color of cobalt, the night coming down like the lid on a pot. On the stove, the ghosts of summer simmer. Tomatoes, garlic, basil, oregano. Steam from the kettle rises, wreathes the windows. You come running when I reach for the grater. Help me, you ask, reversing the pronouns, part of your mind's disordered scramble. Together we hold the rind of the cheese, scrape our knuckles on the metal teeth. A fresh pungency enters the room. You put your fingers in the fallen crumbs. Snow, you proudly exclaim, and look at me. Three years old, nearly mute, but the master of metaphor. Most of the time we speak without words. Outside, the icy stones in the sky glitter in their random order. It's a night so cold, the very air freezes flesh, a knife in the lungs, wind rushing over the coil of the planet, straight from Siberia, a high howl from the wolves of the steppes. As we grate and grate, the drift rises higher. When the family gathers together, puts pasta in their bowls, ladles on the simmered sauce, you will bless each one with a wave of your spoon, snowflakes falling all around. You're the weatherman of the kitchen table. And light as feathers, the parmesan sprinkles down, its newly fallen snow gracing each plate. And that was Barbara Cooker reading Grating Parmesan. And uh, that'll be the end of our open mic for the uh, pre-show. But we'll come back to uh, Alongside We Travel at the end after uh, we talk to Tony for about 45 minutes. So if you, uh, you know, check back here about 45 minutes for more poems from Alongside We Travel, we have um, how many left? Seven poets left on the open mic. And um, one of them is uh, Emily Vogel setting a video. So we have some video as well as some, uh, you know, six other poets reading their poems. Um, 
So let's move on to um, our guest today. Really excited to have him. Uh, um, but first, I should say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We're unaffiliated with any other organization, and we've been in continuous publication since 1995. We do all this uh, because we love poetry and um, don't actually ask for donations or anything. We just do it because we love it. And we hope you do too. So please do click on the like button and share this. Subscribe no matter where you're listening. And it really helps um, spread poetry around instead of all the other terrible things that get spread around on social media. Um, So I'm going to take a really quick break. And we'll be back in just a minute with uh, Tony Glogler. And uh, I'll see you soon. Just one minute. Okay. So I have Tony Glogler on the line uh, from New York City. Uh, Tony is, I, I think I mentioned it before, but he's one of the poets that we've published the most throughout Rattle's history. We've been publishing for 25 years, and we've been publishing Tony for about 20. We've published 10 of his poems over those t- uh, that time, including um, probably our one of our all-time most read poems, 1969. Um, it's one of my favorite personally, and um, it's nice that it's also one of those ones that went viral, and um, thousands and thousands of people have enjoyed that one. Um, but he is a poet who um, sort of stands for what Rattle stands for, which is um, it, it, honesty in the extreme and accessibility and um, telling the truth of our lives through poetry. Um, uh, he's the author of a half dozen books. Uh, his most recent is Alongside We Travel, which is what we'll be focusing on today. Um, he's also, let's see, he's been... Uh, um, uh, Tony Comeback August was published uh, recently before that. He's been published all over the place. And um, he, like I said, he lives in New York City. He manages a group home um, for development disabled men in Brooklyn. And uh, here he is, Tony Glogler. Hey, Tony. Hey, Tim. What's up? How you doing? You having a good night? Yeah, good enough. A little nervous, but other than that, I'm cool. <laughs> yeah, well, you're you're a veteran. You've been reading poems and, and doing readings for a long time. You were, I, I saw you... Um, the first time I met you in person was at that um, Long Beach Poetry Festival, and uh, you were great. You, uh, you know, the, it was one of those moments where everybody in the in the room was hanging on your every word. Uh, it really stands out in my memory. Um, oh, thanks a lot. I had a great time, and uh, I, I felt like I did good. <laughs> well, you did uh, good. You did good for sure. Uh, do you want to read a poem to uh, kick it off? Yeah, definitely. Um, First one will be from the anthology. Mm -hmm. It's called Good. All right, here we go. Good. Walking in the neighborhood. Larry twirls like a circus bear every 20 steps or so. Bends down and pulls up his socks like Thurman Munson adjusting his batting gloves before each pitch. Lee walks down the aisle, sliding his fingers along the packages on every shelf stopping to align each one perfectly before he keeps walking. Some kid stares and laughs. Another runs to his mother, eyes wide with confusion. The mother smiles at me. Her face softens into an apology and then crumbles, turns into an oh, you poor thing pitying pose. I look past her, move closer to Lee, 
touch his arm instead of smacking the nice lady across her mouth. I hold Robert's hand as we walk through the park's gate. He moves like a drunk Pinocchio, nearly misses the bench as he stops to sit. Jesse walks down the aisle, plops down in a window bus seat, smiling widely as cars drive by, humming his tuneless song, breaking into loud laughter. And I'm five years old again, climbing onto the B-55 bus with my leg brace clanking. I drag my huge booted foot through the crowd as the people lean against poles, grab hand grips. An old black woman gets up, offers her seat to me. My mom tells me to thank her, but I whisper, no thanks. Grab hold of a pole and hang on, dream about flying away, disappearing. At home, I sit on the stoop, watch some kids play stickball in the street. A foul ball bounces my way. I catch it, rub the pensy pinky as one of the players runs it down. Come on, give it back, you retarded gimp. I extend my hand. When he gets near, I tackle him, wrestle him to the ground. Surprised, he tries to fight back, struggle out of my hold. I kick him with my brace. Red pours out of his head. It felt good. It still feels good. And that was Tony's, uh, one of his poems from Alongside We Travel. <coughs> um, Tony, let me, I, I know, um, you know, reading your poems, I know that you um, had a brace when you were a kid. Um, you were a great pitcher um, in, in high school because um, you were in our Athlete Poets issue and talked about that. Um, and then I know you became a, a manager at a group home. Um, can you fill in that gap of your bio sort of in the middle um, and how did you get into poetry, and how did you get into um, working at a group home? Poetry was pretty much through listening to music, and it was Dylan, Springsteen, Jackson Brown for me. <coughs> uh, when I got into college, I took a few classes in reading poetry, and I took a woman's poetry class and really liked Anne Sexton, Adrian Rich, and started looking on my own for poetry. Uh, job in a group home just came out of nowhere. I wanted to uh, move in with my girlfriend, needed a job. Uh, the football team I played on, the quarterback was a psychologist, told me they were opening group homes, and I thought that was something I had a chance of liking. Well and Basically, I watched my father do jobs he hated, mm -hmm. and I always was driven to find something I would like, and I was always afraid, you know, after not becoming a baseball player, that I wasn't going to find anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and what, is it, what is it that you like about it? I kind of, um, you know, when I, when I hear you talk about it, I um, kind of had the same experience after college. I worked in a group home for uh, mentally ill adults um, right after college, and I could really have seen myself doing that job my whole life. Um, what, what did you, what do you find rewarding about it that, um, that makes it a job you could, or what is it that you find, um, that's a job you could do? Uh, I mostly get quickly attached to the people who live there. I like them right away. I have a lot more patience with them than quote, uh, neurotypical. Mm -hmm. Is that the right word these <laughs> days? But, uh, and 
I really didn't have a lot of skills in doing anything else. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I like the fact that I can make money doing something that I feel is worthwhile and does something good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly how I felt um, working there. Um, do you want to... Um... Let's see. Let me let me say first. If anybody has any questions for Tony, the chat is open. I see a couple already. David Cook and Connie Poster here. Hi, hi to you too. Um, if you, if anybody else, I'll I'll ask your your questions, David, in a little bit. If anybody else has any questions, just add them in the chat, and I'll pass them along to Tony and see what he says. Uh, do you want to read maybe like two more poems right now, and then we'll do a little more discussion? Sure. Okay. The first one I'm going to do is from my book, "Until the Last Light Leaves," and. It's the first poem I ever wrote about Jesse. It's called Goodbye. Today I picked Jesse up from music group. He said my name soon as I stepped through the door, tried to run to me. The therapist stood up in his way, forced him to say, stay until he made eye contact, said goodbye to his assistant, the other kids. She slowly walked him over to me assured me how much better he was doing while he tugged on my arm, repeating home, louder and louder. I thanked her while we headed out the door, tried to keep him from jumping into every puddle, steer him from bumping into people as we turned down subway stairs. Jesse took a window seat, got on his knees, and traced the outline of his face as we rode. I finger-counted the six stops to Hamilton Parkway, promised that his mom would be waiting for him. When the train rose out of the ground, climbed up into the cloudless sky, he ran to the front door. I stood behind him, played with his hair as all of Red Hook spread beneath us. I glanced at the other riders, curious whether they could tell something was wrong with Jesse, then wondered what he was thinking. If his brain could hold anything other than shapes and colors flying past, the feel of glass against his fingertips, the thought that his mommy would be waiting, three, now two stations away. I imagined what he would do if we stayed on longer, rode out to Coney Island. Would he stop crying and fighting long enough to see or hear, smell the ocean? Would he run across the sand like the summer before, strip down to his shorts, jump and play in the waves until the last light leaves the sky? The closets are empty and piles of packed boxes line the walls of his house. But I'm not sure Jesse knows that this means he's moving back to Maine in the morning. I don't know if he can grasp the concept of missing someone or understand how hard it is for me to keep from crying. He has no idea that I met him three years ago. I went with Helen to pick him up from school one afternoon. The Sunday after, finished with my bowl of oatmeal, I was watching her lift her her teacup to her lips when I realized I wanted to spend my life with her, and it scared me to death. I don't know what Jesse remembers about Maine, about moving to Brooklyn, if he knows when things started to fall apart or why me and his mom couldn't find a way to stay together, if he remembers that I moved down the block, kept visiting him while everyone I know told me to let go and move on, that I didn't owe him a thing and no one seemed to accept or understand 
I love Jesse, that the way we the way he will never fit in the world reminds me of me. And I wish he was my son, my eight-year-old boy, my, my, mine. Thanks, Sonny. Maybe that's a good place to um, introduce Jesse and, and let us know about your relationship and what, what the story of that, that is. Uh, me and his mom reconnected mm-hmm. when he was a five-year-old boy. Uh and at first, my mind was, oh, no, this is going to be pain that she has a kid, that he has special needs. It's going to get in the way of things. But pretty much immediately, you know, I was nuts about him, really liked being with him. Uh, it's like 20 years later, and I probably visit him one weekend a month. And... I guess because of I work with people with special needs, I know how few people that they get to be with and connected with them, spend time with them, are usually family or paid people. Mm-hmm. And and also like when I see him, I just feel better. It's like instant, you know. It's like taking a drug. Yeah, yeah. Um and and what um you know one of the things that I, I autism is something I don't know anything about. And um and one of the things that they talk about alongside we travel is that how different it is for all, you know, people along the spectrum and the different um you know in, impairments they have. Um wh- what is Jesse's? How does he, you know, I think I I read somewhere that he's on his own in an apartment now. Is that is that right? Yes. Uh that's one of the things that's interesting about autism and one of the things I even learned from reading the anthology. All of my experience has been with people who need some degree of constant care and really can't live on their own. And Jesse's situation is he has an apartment that he pays rent for and he has staff with him like 12 hours a day and overnight he's on his own. Mm -hmm. And I probably never imagined that that would have happened. And it was pretty much a model that his mom put together, advocated for, and, you know, really it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And, and was, uh, was early intervention really helpful in his case? I, I, you know, one of the things I keep reading is that, that especially with language, that, that helps a lot? Well, his language started later, mm-hmm. and his intervention didn't really start until about five, four and a half. So it's always better to get it as early as possible to start doing things. But, uh, you know, there are different therapies, strategies that he used, and he's responded in some ways like he has language now but it, you're not going to get a conversation it's more concrete stuff of things he wants answering your questions and almost you know a little robotic mm-hmm. yeah yeah well do you want to read the next poem that you were we're going to read sure this is from the book also 
and it's uh, a group poem on it. So this one's from the home. It's called War Stories. When we're all sitting around waiting for yellow buses to pull up to the curb, drop the guys off from day program, or watching TV waiting for 10 o'clock and the night shift to take our place, sometimes talk turns to back in the day. The first time they came over for lunch, how Jimmy fit an entire Big Mac in his mouth, the special sauce spraying the table like a hydrant on the summer's hottest day, and Liz shaking her head, whispering he's going to be a shitload of trouble. I smiled, knowing he wasn't assigned to me. That Sunday afternoon where Raphael, the worker you'd least want to see walking towards you on a late night empty street, fell asleep, and Jimmy spread his feces through Raphael's perfectly picked fro. Jose promising to take Jimmy to the hookers on 3rd Avenue for a half and half on his 21st birthday. The quiet summer... The quiet summer morning, Jean started screaming, and I flew down the stairs, saw her leaning over Jimmy's bed trying to wake him, yelling, come on, boy, breathe. She grabbed his shoulders, and I took his legs. We lifted, carried him to the floor, and stretched him flat on his back. I tilted his chin, cleared his airway, covered his mouth with mine and blew, then compressed his chest while she counted over and over until... The paramedics clattered up the stairs. I stood in the doorway, ran out of breath, out of breath, tasting his vomit, sweat stinging my eyes, almost crying when the medics gave up on Jimmy, the one guy I never learned to like. There's another poem from Until the Last Light Leaves. Um, David Cook asks about your childhood, and um, he says, uh, how do you see the influence of those of those who um, who raised and cared for you on your own work at the care facility? I was the first born in male in an Italian generation. So I was like treated like a king. Mm-hmm. And then about four, I had this disease called um, Perthes hip disease. So I had this brace. So I had like tons of attention and it was always made clear to me that I was special, needed, you know, I was going to get taken care of. And the only thing that felt funny, and I noticed it early, was like I was getting so much more attention than other people, and I felt weird about it. Yeah, yeah. And so do you, um, you know, do you try to keep that in mind when you, you're working with people? At the home? Well, my sense is, like, I, I have these guys. There's six people who live in the home. And my job is they're in their late 40s, 50s, that I know them really well. I know what they like best. And I'm trying to fill their life with that as much as possible. And hopefully every now and then... uh let them see other things so they might widen their world. Mm-hmm. And these are people who, they're, they're um, lifelong residents of that facility, right? So you have like, you know, decades of relationship with, with the majority of them? Right. They all came from um, institutions. Mm. 
one as young as nine and one like 15 or 16 would be the oldest. Uh, and like one of the things in the anthology was Connie Post is a mom who has her son in a group home. And I never had an experience talking to moms who sent their kids from their own home. Like coming from the institution was always like this wonderful, complete, good thing. Hmm. And, and a little while ago, we had a nurse who had an autistic son and was getting ready to place him. And to see how that works and that dynamic was really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is. Thanks, Tony. Um, <coughs> do you want to read like maybe two more poems now? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go back to the anthology. Okay. And it's called Weather. When we walk out the door, Jesse's respite worker asks him about the weather. It's February in Maine, and there's snow on the ground. He answers, clouds, wind, too cold. Still, I have to remind him to zip his hoodie. Ask maybe... We should go back inside, change his sandals for socks and boots. He blurts, no socks, no shoes. As I dig my hands deeper into pockets, trot to the car. His worker turns down the radio, shows him this, his cell phone. A list of different cities rolls down the screen. Their current temperatures next to them. The worker points to one. And Jesse answers what he'd wear if he were there, a coat or shorts and a T-shirt. When the worker points to another, Jesse pauses and says, New York, Tony House. And I wonder whether he remembers that eight-hour U-Haul drive when he moved to Brooklyn, the summer me and his mom were in love. Jesse, five and a half years old, incessantly sweating, and still marching obsessively room to room, closing every window, tight, sitting on my lap, licking the burnt orange remnants of extra spicy Doritos off his fingers as I talk on the phone, subwaying to the end of the F line and jumping Coney Island waves as it grows too dark to see, playing Rosalita, we're having a party, a good feeling to know on the stereo, Blasting them in the same exact order. Anytime his mom called to say sorry, she'd be home late again from work. As I lift him as high as the ceiling, bounce him on the bed over and over until we both run out of breath. Ready for a Beach Boys lullaby to close our eyes. Hopefully help him, me, sleep through the night, please. This is another one from uh, my book, and it's about J Jesse also, and it's called World of Wonders. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a bit of a cold. These days, riding the city bus is Jesse's favorite activity. Even if he ends up getting a Ben and Jerry's brownie, and two slices of Ken's pizza where he eats the cheese while I munch on his crust. It's the journey that matters. 
He always sits on the same spot of the bench, patiently waits. Whether it's wintry and windy, sunny and steamy, he never moves to the shade or the glass shelter. He's, he loves watching cars glide by, sliding a special pass in the slot to pay, sitting by a window, feeling the drum and hum beneath his feet. Giddy sounds bubble, tumble out of his mouth, and everyone looks at him, then quickly turns away whenever I catch them staring. In small cities, buses are filled mostly with people too poor to afford cars, old ladies muttering nonsense through clenched teeth, teenagers aching for their license with cell phones clinging to their ears, unemployed, hungover guys and broken women heading to shelters with a toddler or two, and Jesse and me. Today, the fattest woman I've ever seen hauls herself onto the bus carrying a tiny child, a folded carriage. She plops down, taking up two and a half seats. Nearby riders scatter to the back as if a mortar shell just landed. She thanks them in a voice just beyond the whisper. The other riders are still sneaking glances at Jesse, and I wonder what they would think if they knew the whole story. They'd understand how I once loved his mom and took Jesse, five years old at the time, as my own. But even close friends can't believe I travel so far to visit, wonder if he's my biological son. Did I get any mercy sex this time? No, I haven't seen Helen in nearly two years. We set up, coordinate dates and times in emails as taut and terse as Raymond Carver characters. Jesse's workers take me to from the airport and in between it's him and me for three days and I always give thanks for my time with him. Back on the bus, the woman's son bounces on her knee. Too young to talk, his head bops and shakes like a bobblehead. His brightly lit eyes, excited and curious, settle on Jesse and his mouth grows into a giggle, shows the start of two tiny front teeth. His mom snuggles him closer and lightly kisses the top of his head, and her skin shines like a halo. Later, when Jesse lifts my bags out of the trunk, starts to walk back to the car, I ask for a hug, and he leans in, lends me his cheek, as usual. When I say, I meant a real hug, he extends his arms straight out, like the wings of an airplane a huge bird anxious for flight. But before he turns to walk away, I say, no, this time I want to squeeze. He wraps his arms around me, and I am filled with wonder for the ten whole seconds he can stand to hold me. Thanks, Ryan. That was World of Wonder from Tony's most recent book, Until the Last Light Leaves. Um, there's some excellent questions here, so I'm just going to pass them along. Um, so first, uh, Alexis Rohn Fancher's here. Hi, Alexis. And she says, uh, New York City, especially Brooklyn, is like another character in your poems. Can you discuss that? Well, I'm a narrative poet that is ba most of his work is based on something that happens to me. So it's there. I've always lived in Brooklyn and Queens, and it's just part of me. I, the couple, yeah, I've gone to California like five or six times. And about after three days, I get the bends. It, it's just, you know, a different feel. 
and and I just really yeah, it's kind of like this is where I belong, and I don't want to really really see if I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about New York that makes you belong? Uh, It's mostly like you know, it's where I'm from. It's my neighborhood. It's the people I know. Probably, you know, I, I still have friends that. You know, I was playing basketball in the schoolyard with when I was 14 or so. Mm-hmm. And and actually, two of them worked a long time at the same agency I did. So it was pretty cool. That's cool. You're making me kind of jealous for moving to California. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, Rob Warren asks, uh, we all know Tony's love for music, especially live concerts. And I just saw you went to a Dylan show just a couple last week, maybe. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Um, and Rob Warren says, I was curious if he has ever thought about setting your, his words to music. I, I tried it with a friend and I really, really suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not that good at, if I'm not good at something pretty quickly, I, I kind of let it go. And I don't think I'm particularly interested in working with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask too, um, why is it that you feel drawn to poetry in particular? Like you're a narrative poet and it feels to me, I mean, you're such an honest poet that you're telling stories about your life. What is it about poetry and setting it to words that, that's meaningful for you and, and drives you to keep doing it? As compared to some other kind of form? No, as opposed or... to, you know, just playing basketball and, um, okay. you know, as opposed to doing anything else. Uh, basically when I was growing up, nobody seemed to be talking about the things that were going on in my mind. And as I said before, when I was listening to music, some of the lyricists really caught my eye that they were. And I I thought I'd give it a try and spent, you know, maybe five, seven years trying to do it without showing it to anyone. Then I started showing some stuff to friends and eventually like late twenties, mid twenties, uh, took a couple of workshops and I fell in with this guy, William Packard, who is the editor of New York quarterly. And, you know, I got, I got enthralled and he kind of convinced me that what I was doing could be poetry and also that I didn't suck. (laughs) And, and, you know, before I started sending out poems, he asked me to send poems to, like, New York Quarterly. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see my poem in with, like, Bukowski and Everhart and, you know, people. And I'm saying, all right, well, maybe I'm all right and I could get good at this. <laughs> yeah, well, Packard's a good uh, champion to have, that's for sure. <clears throat> yeah, he was really good to me. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was a little intimidated by him and a little scared by him. So I didn't get as close to him as I probably could have. And in a lot of ways, you know, he was sort of like the weird artist. And I was a kid from Queens and some of his stuff that he would say, like, you know, poetry is the most important thing and stuff like that. You know, I still don't, you know, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. So. It, it was part of him that was tough to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and as, a, as a kid from Queens, um, do you find that, that other sort of kids from Queens respond to your poetry? Do you, 
you know, your readers, do you have people, um, you know, that aren't poets that are, that are reading and enjoying your work? Are you breaking through that wall of, um, you know, into mainstream at all? No, it, I, I, I do think like when I put this book out, the last book out, I invited people from my job. I made sure we had food, so there would be at least something they'd want there. And, and I do believe that they liked it, but I don't think they would ever look at poetry other than mine. Hmm, yeah. It, you know, it, it just didn't translate. And, you know, and a lot of them were nice enough to buy books, but probably only three or four of them talked to me about hmm. it. E even... You know, I did hope with this book that people who are connected to autism or people with special needs would, like, get drawn to it. But I, I don't think if people don't read poetry that they're going to look for poetry in, in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why, why do you think that is? Uh, I, I think when I first thought of poetry, it seemed elitist, too difficult, yeah, but yours is like the exact opposite. So, you know, if, if there's somebody who could cut through to people, um, you know, if you if you have people at your that you work with reading your poems, um, they shouldn't have that problem at all. Right. No, they shouldn't. But, it, you know, it's not like they read anything else. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm not going to bother with poetry. It's, <laughs> it's just that they're not going to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, nobody in my family really reads my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my mom will ask me about it, uh, but it's almost like, you know, when I was eight years old and I brought home a, some kind of picture from school <laughs> and she put it on the refrigerator, uh, yeah. I, I think it's like that. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, well, why don't you read another another poem? We've been talking for a while. <clears throat> I, I just want to read one that's not about special needs on my job. Okay, sounds good. Like, like one of the things that happened at work is also it put me in a different culture. I'm the only Caucasian there. And being a minority and, and dealing with different cultures all the time was just completely new to me. Uh, back in the 60s when I grew up in Queens, my section was really segregated. So this one's called Black and White. I sometimes took the F train home from work with Lois, and I can feel her cringe any time a smelly black beggar stepped in front of us, held out his hand, and God blessed us, even when we never gave them a penny. She'd shake her head, and her face would grimace any time a gaggle of teenagers took over our car, the girls clacking gum swinging their fat ghetto earrings and the boys swaggering around in those baggy, low-riding jeans and showing off their funky-ass underwear, saying, fuck this and nigger that. She'd lean over, grab my forearm, and whisper how she'd like to take a switch to every one of their mothers while wishing she had the guts to tell them to stop acting the fool and disgracing her. Mondays, we talk about weekends. Hers were a visiting nurse job, a long hot bath, candles, wine, some longtime lover she'd toss out before she left for church. Mine was a movie or concert, 
an old girlfriend back in town, dinner with a new woman, hardly better than being alone writing. Sometimes, I'm sorry, Sundays I'd sometimes visit my mom and someone, my brother, my sister, or my cousin the cop would slip in the word nigger, somewhere between the pasta and meat, about some spoiled selfish athlete, our ruined old Brooklyn neighborhood, or welfare, and Sharpton, and fatherless children, and I'd keep eating, never saying a word, except to please pass the lasagna, knowing I couldn't change anybody's mind in trying to believe that nothing they said had anything to do with me. Thanks, Tony. Uh, let me ask about that poem and, and others, too. You're one of the poets who doesn't uh, hold back on anything. You know, you use the, the N-word in poems, no problem. Uh, you talk about, you know, sexual things that, that some people might not want to write about. Um, do, do you ever feel hesitant to, to, you know, hold back on things like that? Or do you like what, what's your perspective on something like using the N-word in a poem? I've probably, I would guess, used it about 10 times in poems. Well, that's like 10 more times than most people do. <laughs> uh, right. Um, most of it, like probably eight, is someone else uttering them. Mm -hmm. And once or twice when it's in a poem, and I've said it, I've always tried to put it in a situation where I either felt bad about it, awkward, or something. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I always think my poems are about these little scenes that happen, individual episodes. I don't think I'm making a grand statement about race. You know, I feel like I'm writing an honest poem that's based to a good degree on something that happened. And I'm trying to see how I dealt with it, felt about it, and maybe other people have felt that too. Mm -hmm. and, and I and I just, like when I went to write, started writing, it was like to be really open and, you know, I wanted it to talk about things that other people weren't, almost like a heightened conversation. So I don't feel holding back. I, I will say that sometimes when I read it out loud, afterwards, I, I kind of would say, like, damn, did I really say that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But but when I'm writing, I feel fine. And a couple people with that I exchange with will sometimes call me on it. And I'll always, you know, I'll always try to make sure I have a good reason for using mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that that one of the things poetry really does is is um, you know help our understanding of taboos and and what we aren't allowed to say or think or what we don't have access to, and that's sort of what poems do. They're stories that are allowing or giving some kind of um, um, you know new insight into situations that we come across in life. So so it's it's I don't know. I, I I'm always really. I'm proud of your bravery, I guess I should say, for, for writing, you know, not just poems like that, but there are a whole bunch of poems that um, a lot of people would hold back on. And I was wondering, do you consider yourself a confessional poet? Uh, to, to a good degree. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, they're really not, you know, they're not memoir. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I will play with the poem to make the effect better. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and kind of along those lines, maybe, um, Joshua Corwin is here, and, he, and he's a poet um, with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, and he asked, do you, uh, where'd it go? Um, do you also think that trying to imagine from the perspective or vantage point of someone else with autism ends up being a kind of appropriation? So sort of along the same lines, do you, do you ever worry about like putting yourself in other people's shoes and whether or not you're getting it right or you have permission to do that? Or do you not worry about that at all? Uh, I do worry about it. And I don't think I do that often, especially with people with autism, like, Often, I will say something, I imagine he's thinking this, or I, I, I kind of want to report on the actions they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- one of my biggest interests, and I haven't figured out how to write about it, is guys, the people that I deal with and work with, and Jesse... Like, what is their awareness of how they see themselves compared to other people? Like, one of the things I notice on, like, my two favorite people in the world, they really don't care ever what anybody thinks about them. Hmm. And, And there are times when, you know, I really try to be that way. And, but it never enters their mind. And, like, the highest functioning person I have at the group home, he's in the area where he has some awareness at it of his, you know, where he fits in the world. Mm-hmm. But he he also is the only person who can carry a conversation. So I can ask him. Like, the other people that I work with don't have that kind of verbal ability. It, and, and one of the other things that... I do think that the anthology points out is people on the spectrum compared to the people who need, you know, constant care, they should have two different names. You know, it's really not the same thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, we have like a, you know, a few more minutes. Do you want to read maybe one or two poems to close out? Yes. Uh I'll do one from uh, the group home and then another about Jesse. Great. Uh, sorry, it's taking so long. No problem. All right. I, I think this is one of those poems that other people don't write about. And it's about Larry. He's my favorite guy. It's called Knowledge. Larry's not smart enough to know he's retarded. He's unaware he's built like a bowling pin. That his shaved head shines like Mr. Clean, and everybody stares when he waddles down the block. He's happy holding my hand, crossing the street to eat pizza. We order a large pie, slide in a booth, and wait for Nancy. Larry blows a wolf whistle when we kiss, and I fit my tongue into her mouth. He eats three slices slurps the cheese stringing down his chin, sucks the sauce off his fingers, and sips Pepsi. Every loud burp is a gunshot of joy. Last month, we spent our first night together. We stopped at the bodega, 
picked up pieces of fruit, orange juice, and a bunch of blue flowers. She played Ricky Lee Jones, and we kissed on the couch like junior high, tugged at each other's clothes, moved to the bedroom, lit candles. We fucked and fucked until she made me promise to let her sleep. She wrapped my arms around her, curled into me. I stayed awake, kept watch all night. I hug Larry goodbye on the stoop, watch him walk inside the residence with his counselor. I know she'll help him bathe, brush his teeth, button his pajamas. She'll tuck him in, shut the door behind her. Larry will wait for quiet, pull down his bottoms, and turn on his stomach. He'll slide the pillow between his thighs, bunch it into a ball, hump it until he comes. He'll finger paint the silky thick liquid across his chest, lift it to his nose, sniff, then taste it. I don't know who or what fills his head these moments. Long, lean blondes, muscular black men in motorcycle boots, Down syndrome women and their light blue eyes, full floppy breasts. Is his mind empty, like a Buddhist, content with the feel of his own skin, the heat and the speed building until he reinvents fire? Larry will probably die in that Catholic group home for six men in Brooklyn. He will never lie down with a woman, never sleep next to someone he loves for seven years, roll together in the middle of the night, half asleep, and wake to find himself moving inside her. He'll never have to forget that Sunday morning, the bagels, the hot chocolate, the way she says she has to talk to him, and she doesn't know where to begin. She's not sure how it happened, and she never wanted to hurt him. But she doesn't love him anymore, and she thinks she needs to leave. Larry will never find out how long it takes to learn to sleep alone again. And years later, he will never meet someone new. He will never go home with her that first night. Never lie awake. Watch her eyelids jerk. It's part of some dream. And wonder if tonight could be the beginning of something holy. And... The last one from the anthology it's called magnitude my friend's wife has a niece who is autistic he doesn't seem to believe that I never wish Jesse was different he talks about missing the big things like proms and graduations I joke about the perks not worrying about Jesse driving drunk on weekends paying for college pretending to like the woman he wants to marry. I tell him I take Jesse as he is, and I know what not to expect, how every new thing how every new thing he does grows in magnitude. The first time he ran to me, grabbed my hand when I picked him up at school. The first morning he walked into our Brooklyn bedroom to cuddle between us. That one time he scavenged through his cluttered sensations, strung four words together and told me clearly, Tony, come back August. I explain I am one of the chosen few that Jesse invites into his world, and it helps me imagine I am special with unique superpowers. But yes, I am lying a bit. I've always wanted to lift him on my shoulders, six years old, and singing that he believes in the promised land at a Springsteen show. 
Place him one-on-one in the schoolyard, keeping it close and never letting him win until he beats me on his own. And yes, this past weekend in Maine, I wish he watched television. We would have sat and argued when Girardi benched A-Rod, ate salty snacks as the Yanks played the Orioles in the deciding fifth game. Instead, I sat on a kitchen stool listening to the radio broadcast while Jesse was happy in his room, tearing pages of picture books into piles of thin paper strips. Tony Glogler, thanks so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure getting to talk to you and and hearing your poems again. No, I appreciate you having me and always enjoy looking at Rattle and reading it. Well, thank you. Have a great night, Tony. All right, man. Take care. So that was Tony Glogler uh, reading from both uh, Alongside We Travel, um, Contemporary Poets on Autism, edited by Sean Thomas Doherty, that book from NYQ Books. Um, and um, he's also read from his newest book, uh, his own collection, Until the Last Light Leaves, also from NYQ Books. And um, you can get it there at, uh, what is the website there? NYQ.org. And, and just look for Tony Glogler, and you'll see about five of his books, I think, are available there. Um, let's see. So let's go back to um, the open mic, or the closed mic, I should say. We're going to be reading more poems from Alongside We Travel. This is a special episode. Normally, we have a, um, uh, we have a phone number you can call. Um, let me put it up for you really quick. Just so you know about the in the for the for the future future reference, usually you can call in either through Skype to Rattle Poetry or um, or by phone to eight one eight eight five zero seven seven two seven. So if you're watching this uh, for the first time, please do uh, come back again next week and uh, join on the open mic, which is always a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Skype is preferred, but a regular phone works just as well. So um, so please do that. Uh, but now let's go back to our uh, poems from from the anthology. We left off with Barbara Crooker. And here is uh, Cheryl Dumasnil. Um, Cheryl, actually, we just sent her an acceptance letter for the spring issue, like on Sunday. Um, so um, sort of a coincidence that she appears here. But uh, she's in this anthology on page 48. Let me pull it up really quick. Um, let's see. Her books include the poetry collection Showtime at the Ministry of Last Co- Lost Causes, and in the in praise of falling, from the both from the University of Pittsburgh Press, which is uh, my favorite press, so they must be good books. A freelance writer, editor, and writing coach, she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her two children and her wife Sarah. You can find more of her work at Cheryl Dumasnil dot com. That's D U M E S N I L. And here she is reading a poem called "American Robin." American Robin the first bird to pipe up after the rain clouds shut off for the day. At work, I show my client a flashcard and say, this is a robin. He says, no, it's not. It's a bird. He speaks in the block language of cardboard picture books, and I try to fill in the gaps, holding up macaw and blue jay and blackbird for him to learn. What nuances get lost when we don't have the language to name them? The Inuit's mythical hundred words for snow versus our functional descriptions. Powdery, wet, icy, the kind that makes good snowballs, the kinds that don't. How that notion of 100 descriptors makes us want to see more, 
to look for distinctions between the lacy flakes that rest on a scarf and the white asterisks that freeze in the corners of your window on a sub-zero night. When I ask him, what should we play today? He replies, I want to play with the something. And I remember a time when my own answers to the question, how do you feel, began with the phrase, I think... How the mind overlooks the waves of the body until we learn the words to name them. I sing Little Robin Redbreast while he cuts feather shapes out of colored paper. We write a word on each feather and glue it to his wings. And once again, that was uh, Cheryl Dumasnail reading American Robin from um, Alongside We Travel. Um, I'm going to try something if I never brought in a new a video before. Um, let's see. Oh, I took it out. Um, hang on one second. I'm going to add this. You'll just have to bear with me. But I wanted to play um, Emily Vogel included a... Um, Vogel, I'm very glad to be a part of Alongside We Travel um, and helping spread awareness on autism. Um, I have two autistic children. Um, one is five going on six, the other is six going on seven. Um, and the poem I'm going to read is um, probably, uh, I would say, from the mother's perspective. Um, the mother uh, may be trying to disengage from the circumstance which has um, been imposed upon her, not by anybody's fault, but just because, right? Because, right? And we nobody knows the answer and nobody... You know, research proves so many things, but we never will know. And what help would it do us if we did know anyway? Because we have to contend with it. So um, I'm going to read a poem called Sad Trees. I cannot tell you enough just how sad the trees appear from outside my daughter's window. People will say her mother shut the door to her room and lay on the bed and did not emerge for years. They will say her mother's spirit was tethered to the melancholy trees and she never wept but stared zombie-eyed outside the evening window. And I cannot find many of my daughter's puzzle pieces. I cannot find the dog, the fish, the frog, the gerbil. I suppose if I was a totally ridiculous mom, I would upheave the entire house until I found this elusive menagerie. But I haven't the energy of well-oiled machines and my brain floats and bobs like scum on a pond in an unbearably warm September. I go to the window, cannot reconcile myself to the trees. All of me feels like an absence and yet intolerably present to the pull of juvenile hands, to a scientific rule, to the madness of infinite starlight. Thank you. So hopefully that worked. That was Emily Vogel uh, reading her poem, uh, Sad Trees, from Alongside We Travel. Emily Vogel's most recent book is Dante's Unintended Flight from NYQ Books, and she teaches writing at SUNY Oneata. Uh, and is married to the poet Joe Whale. Um, so hopefully that worked. I'll have to watch that back um, after the fact and see if it actually did, because we've never done a, never, I've never put in a video before. Uh, hopefully it worked, though. It looked like it was. Um, let's see. Next up, we will do Megan Merchant um, from Alongside We Travel. And Megan Merchant's a poet. A bunch of these poets are poets we've published a lot over the years ourselves. And Megan Merchant's one of those. Uh, she's been in Poets Respond a whole bunch of times. And here she is uh, reading her poem, Cradling an Empty Cup. Cradling an Empty Cup. 
The neurologist says, absent seizures, so I add a drop of water. The therapist says, drool, and I take a sip. We have already prepared for this slippery season by covering our hands in rubber gloves. She says, no, we must persist. Long road, think ahead. I add two. Then spectrum, expressive delay, attention deficit, the jaw lock, mid-choke, and tears so silent that when I move to check his face, hearing that long train whistle of instinct, I found him, a mime performing pain. Eight drops. Hands flapping like wings trying to catch the splint of sun. One. Gull mouth cradling salt-rusted words. Two. I carry the cup while driving, wandering alone through the store, folding laundry into paper cranes, borrowing the words for this poem. I carry the quiet stub of sorrow, add a drop when each wired word disconnects and his stations fuzz. Day by day the cup grows heavier, my arm aches deep in the bone, not because of the balance or weight, a drop or two different, but because I'm refusing to set it down. A witness's job is not to cure, but carry. So I sing the first bars of each lullaby and tuck a white sheet, a half-moon embrace, staying awake in case he rises and shapes his empty hands into the sign for water. And that was Megan Merchant reading her poem from Alongside We Travel. Megan Merchant is the editor um, and editor at the Comstock Review and Purine's Fountain. Uh, her latest book, Before the Fevered Snow, will come into the world with Stillhouse Press this April coming up in 2020. And you can find more work at Megan Merchant, spelled like it sounds, at wix or dotwix.com. So uh, check her out there. Let's see, we have one, two, three more poems to do from Alongside We Travel. And I'd like to thank everybody who took the time to record these poems and, and share them with us. Um, it's really a great anthology to read. I um, learned a lot and was very moved um, reading through from all the different perspectives, as, as Sean Thomas Doherty said in the introduction, um, just so much variation um, to, to the experience. And um, it was amazing, amazing to see so many um, through through poetry. Uh, let's see. So so next up, it's Connie Post. And Connie Post has been here tonight. So hi, Connie. Uh, your poem is coming up in just a second. Connie's poem is on page 144. Annual Review by Connie Post. We gather in a small room, tables, chairs, half-filled notebooks that try to tell your story. Someone new assigned to your case asks me questions I have answered a thousand times. No, he can't brush his teeth. No, he can't make his own meals. Yes, he tries to make his bed. Sometimes he busses his own plates. Sometimes he cries. We don't know why. Sometimes he tears his clothes to shreds and then we buy new ones. One hour and 20 minutes pass. Each person at the table closes their files. I want to tell them how you said cheese once when you stood at the refrigerator. Back then, there were no case managers, no funds to be dispersed, no team meetings. Just a boy whose blonde hair I combed each morning and a silence that knew which way we were headed. And that was Connie Post from Alongside We Travel, 
reading her poem, Annual Review. Uh, Connie Post is a California poet. I've met her several times. Um, her first full-length collection, Floodwater, was the winner of the 2014 Lyrebird Award from Glass Lyre Press. And you can find her at poetrypost.com, which I think is a great URL. Um, okay, and then we have two more. Uh, next up is Angeline Schellenberg. Uh, her debut collection, Tell Them It Was Mozart, from Brick Books 2006, which is a series of linked poems about raising two children on the autism spectrum. And it won the Lansdowne Prize for Poetry, the Eileen McTavish Sykes Award for Best First Book, and was a finalist for the 2017 Relit Award for Poetry. And she lives in Winnipeg, Canada. And uh, here's her poem. What Doctors Took Seven Years to Discover. What Doctors Took Seven Years to Discover. He sits cross-legged on the sofa. In his lap, a library book about amazing Alfie, a little computer wired differently from all the others, yelled at, laughed at, saves the day. A tear slides down my boy's lip, but his eyes are calm. I'm Alfie, he says, relieved this feeling finally has a name. And that was Angeline Schellenberg reading What Doctors Took Seven Years to Discover. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angeline. And uh, last but not least, Alison Stone has published six full-length collections, most recently Caught in the Myth from NYQ Books. Uh, she's also a painter and creator of the Stone Tarot. Um, and I think she did the cover of Taylor Molly's chapbook that we did. I assume that's the same Alison Stone. Um, she's also a licensed psychotherapist. She has private practices in New York City and Nyack. You can find her more at stonepoetry.org and stonetarot.com. And here she is, closing us out for the night, reading her poem. Um, I think it's Heretic that she's reading. Let's see. Yeah, Heretic. I'm Alison Stone, and this poem is called Heretic. I never got the point of God faraway father with his tantrums and commandments, magic enough to fix any problem, but usually choosing not to. Trying to believe, I memorized the prayers, sang what I was taught, searched Bible stories for things to like, the ark's zoo of neatly paired animals, the Red Sea opening like a book. Job was my last straw, Not a sinner, not punished, just tortured so God could prove something to Satan, a minor character Jews don't even give a place to live. Livelihood gone, children killed, Job stayed loyal until, pain-dazed, he asked why, then was berated for daring to question. Still, it's taught as a story that ends happily, More animals, new kids, his boil-scarred skin soothed, just like the time I pushed furniture against my bedroom door, my brother in one of his fits, yelling threats, trying to pick the lock with a screwdriver, then turning his rage on my dolls, and afterwards my parents buying me new ones, as though that made everything all right. 
And that was the last poem for the uh, closed mic today. This was uh, Alison Stone reading her poem, Heretic. Once again, we're rereading uh, poems from this excellent anthology from NYQ Books, Alongside We Travel. Hope you enjoyed it. And thanks to everybody who um, had questions for Tony and um, who shared poems for this um, from this anthology for today's episode. Really appreciate it. Um, and really appreciate Sean Thomas Doherty for putting it together. It's an excellent book of poems. Uh, once again, Tony Glogler's book, uh, his most recent anyway, is um, Until the Last Light Leaves, which you can also get from NYQ Books. So that's the show for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, please do click the like button and share and all that stuff. i got to say that once or twice an episode because it actually helps. Um, and uh, the likes and shares make it so it pops up on the watch next and all that stuff. So um, please do that. Um, next up, uh, next week, we're going to have another great episode, Peter E. Murphy, uh, plus the open mic will be back. Uh, he has two books, um, More Challenges for the Delusional. It's a book of prompts, and then he has uh, really famous poets responding and writing poems after his prompts. And then he also has a book that he'll be reading from... Um, I can't see it from here. I need glasses or something. Uh, I can't remember the title, but he has another new book out, and he'll be reading from that. So um, so hope you join us for that episode next week. And um, in the meantime, hope you have a great week, and I will see you soon. Good night. <laughs>